versus the world's productions. Nerds on the Internet. What more could you ask for? www.vtwproductions.com Thanks so much for coming to the Barney Horse Adventure panel. Um, surprised to see so many people here. No, uh, this is for... I think, yeah. Uh, back when I saw this demo at E3, I declared that this is one of the few games that reminded me how magical games can be. And so it's a great pleasure and a great honor to actually be moderating this. We are, of course, talking about Bioshock Infinite, which... It's just a, a from, from, from the little we've seen already, and I think anyone, anyone in the crowd can agree, it's, it's, it's quite phenomenal, I think, quite impressive. And uh, we have the creator and the head of Irrational Games, Ken Levine, right here. Also joining us, and it's really going to make this panel quite fascinating, are two of the voice actors from the games, uh, obviously playing the role of Elizabeth Courtney Draper. So the man that we all will be playing, Booker DeWitt is Troy Maker. So, so Ken, I wanted to start. Uh, I'm assuming everyone in this room has is, is played Bioshock, and uh, as phenomenal as the game was, and I've asked you this before, how does one pitch a game that's, hey, it's an underwater city, it's Art Deco, there's a lot of Ayn Rand elements to it, uh, and that they say, oh, here's a few million dollars, please go and make that. <laughs> how do you pitch it? Yeah. Over many, many frustrating years. Um, <laughs> you know, that was, we, it took a long, long time to sell that game. And um, look, and I can understand, well, what always happened is we'd go pitch it to some publisher, and we'd have some guy in the publisher who was a System Shock 2 fan. He'd be like, oh my god, we gotta make this game, we gotta make this game. And then he'd go to his um, higher-ups, and he'd say, oh, we gotta make this game. And they'd be like, well, how many copies did System Shock 2 sell? And he'd be like, <laughs> and then they find out the number, which was almost fucking nothing. And, um, and then that would be the end of that. And it took finally till um, I met Susan Lewis at, at 2K, who was a believer and um, got the company behind it, sold it to her higher-ups, and um, made it happen. And then, you know, they ended up buying the company and really, um, really, and really um, investing in the game and making it to be, you know, what we hoped it could be. And... Uh, Took a long time. Uh, you are very singular, I would say. And if, 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 if I am. Games, yes. they, 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 no, he's married. <laughs> singular. Uh, obviously, you you worked on the original Thief, which really kind of opened up the world to the idea of stealth gaming. Obviously, System Shock Two, uh, which is easily one of my favorite games of, of, of the nineties. Uh, you know, even Freedom Force, which I, 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 I you know I've gone back and dabbled in recently. Um, What's your approach when you want to do these games? You, you, you seem to come to them with a clear vision, and you seem to know how to execute on that vision quite well. Um, well, just to be clear, you know, it's, there's like, there's like a hundred and so on. Oh, yes, people. yes, I, yes, I, 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 I say that, yes. <laughs> um, it'd be a lot cheaper if it was just me. But, um, <laughs> you know, generally, I think we start with something that we're, we're passionate about. You know, System Shock 2 was easy because I was the biggest System Shock 1 fanboy. I didn't work on it, and I came to Looking Glass. That was one of the reasons I, I came there. Um, and when the opportunity to come up to do that game came up, it was just such a no-brainer for us. Um, because, you know, it was, and it was the first game, I, you know, the first um, game I ever shipped. Thief was, um, and so that, that we already had the IP. That was a little clear, and we knew that, you know, we just had to put more showdown, and we'd have a good game. Um, with Thief, it was really, um, you know, I got fortunate to work with a guy named Doug Church, who um, was the guy who really led creatively under Ultima Underworld and System Shock One. And like my first week at Looking Glass, I get put in a room with Doug, and they're like, and the mission was to create action RPG was, was the mission. And we kicked around a million ideas, and um, eventually, uh, you know, and they kept changing, they kept changing. But the thing that kept coming, or we kept, Doug and I kept coming back to, coming back to, was having an AI that would see you and not immediately attack you, but go, 
hey, is somebody there? And that, through all the different versions of the game design, it was for a while it was a game called Dark Camelot, for a while it was a game called Better Red Than Undead, for a while it was a game called Dark Elves Must Die. It was all these weird games. And then finally, um, Paul Marath said, why don't you make a game about a thief? And, um, and we took all these ideas we had had and we put it into, into this thief idea. And, uh, and that's what it became. I mean, has, has the idea of approaching a game and designing a game and, and making a game, how much has that changed over your career? I mean, obviously from, from, from Thief to the original Bioshock. Well, it's a much bigger team now. You know, it used to be, I think on System Shock 2, we were like 11 guys in a single room for like 13 or 14 months. And that was, you know, everybody knew what everybody was doing because we were, we were sitting right across from each other. Now when you have like, you know, 100 and some odd people, communication becomes problem. Just how does everybody know what everybody else is doing? And that sounds stupid, but you really just don't know what other people are doing. And quite often you have situations where somebody's doing something over here and somebody's doing something over here and they're totally different. It's a lot easier when it's an area that I'm sort of very much at the center of, like like the story stuff. And, you know, I can just work with, with Troy and Courtney in, in a recording session and, and we know pretty much all, all everything what's going on, but across a huge project like that, it just gets overwhelming. So, Bioshock Infinite, uh, obviously it has the Bioshock name, and, and, and I assume everyone here has seen at least the trailer, if not the demo? Yeah! Oh, good. Yeah, yeah, we actually, we, we have the trailer. Uh, how about you give us an idea of like, what you're trying to accomplish with this game, because while it says Bioshock, it is a very distinctly different game from, from the original. Well, I, I think, you know, when, after we finished the first game, we were kind of left with a real problem, which is like, well, what do we, what do, we do next? And we kicked a lot, around a lot of ideas for around six months, and I don't think we ever felt that for us doing just a, a sequel and rapture was the right thing to do, because, and we had the same problem after, I mean, to some degree after SWAT 4, we were like, Vivendi wanted us to do another SWAT game, and we we're like, well, we just did a SWAT game, as much as we liked that game, we didn't know what else to do with it, and there's people, some people may be familiar, we almost did a game called, that we called Zombie SWAT, um, which we, if you go to our webpage, you can see like um, some videos of this like zombie meets SWAT kind of game that was sort of a prototype for a lot of stuff. Well, I don't know, it wasn't a prototype, nobody saw it. So, But it was a, a game before there were a lot of zombie games. Um, and we really struggled with repeating ourselves and not knowing exactly what to do. And then Stephen Alexander, our, um, our senior effects guy, the guy who made the water in, in Bioshock amongst a million other things, said, well, what if we just were to do another Bioshock game but basically throw out all the rules? And we immediately sort of all tuned into that. And I think we were nervous for briefly, the publisher would be like, are you guys fucking kidding me? Um, but they were very open to it. They were very, very open to it. And, um, you know, and so we, we just started getting rolling that. And the first thing was, you know, well, the only things we really wanna keep as, as sacred is the sort of weapon in one hand, power in the other hand, and you've got this world, this very, believable but crazy world that you're exploring, but everything else is really up for grabs. All right, well, let's take a look at the trailer to see how, what, what happens when you throw out all the rules. Piggy 18. <laughs> <laughs> I will stop him. That is enough you cannot keep. Promise me that if it comes to it, you will not let him take me back.
Even from this angle. It's so really, really cool. Um, so, so obviously one of the things that's shown in the So distinct from the original Bioshock is this sense of sort of characters right there and yeah. the characterization so everything was, was coming over and of course when we have our two lovely uh, talented people here what, when was the decision that you were not going to follow that Bioshock rule and actually have someone in there that you were interacting with? Well we have really painted ourselves into a corner of Bioshock because people are familiar with you know, the twist where you learn who Jack is and where he came from and the fact that he was sort of that you know, he's this cipher who is by design a cipher we couldn't really go back and make another game, honestly, where you were a cipher. Because originally, because I think the first question people would be asking is, okay, who's, you know, who's he really? You know, who is this guy? And um, that really left us with a problem. And I think that whenever we have a real problem, we always try to say, okay, well, what's the opportunity in this problem? And the opportunity we found was, let's go against what our instinct is, and let's really try to embrace character in the storytelling. Because you know, if you look at Bioshock 1, it's basically a museum piece. You know, you're in Rapture after it's fallen apart and after the party's over. And we said, well, what if in this story you were the catalyst for what happens in Columbia in a lot of ways? And what that meant is, okay, well, if you're a catalyst, you have to be sort of a living, breathing person. And that's where Booker DeWitt came in. And then if you wanted Booker to have a character to interact with, you know, um, we had an idea to have this woman, Elizabeth, in this story, but we never really thought about kind of what that would mean in terms of building a relationship between the two of them. And in fact, for a long time, both Booker and Elizabeth were silent um, because we were, you know, it's that thing like you're, you have your, you're hanging over the precipice, but you don't want to make the jump. And for a long time, like, people would say, well, Elizabeth would say this, like, no, 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 she's not going to say anything. She's not going to talk. She's not going to talk. And then I realized that, that was just not going to be, that was not a sensible thing to do, and it was a missed, and it would be a missed opportunity. And so we just started talking about, well, what would it mean to have this companion, to be a person, to be Booker, and to have this person with you, and do it in a way that people hadn't really seen before. And you know, and that started a very long and challenging, probably the most challenging process in this game is, is Elizabeth and Booker. So, so Courtney, uh, you have had past acting experience, but you're kind of, uh, I might be done with the acting thing, going to law school now, but then suddenly, you know, this opportunity presents itself to you. I mean, I, I can't imagine you were seeking out, I need to be in the bio, a Bioshock game. Um, is this on? Yeah. I, I did, is this thing on? I didn't, um, yeah, I mean, I, I did acting for like 10 years, and then I just thought, I don't know, this really isn't for me, it's not making me happy anymore. Um, for various reasons, and I decided to go back to school, and I got my bachelor's from UCLA, and I kind of was doing voiceovers a little bit here and there. I, I probably actually did about, I mean, I want to say about five auditions in the last, for voiceovers in the last couple years, and one of them was for Bioshock, which I didn't even know what that was, <laughs> and uh, I know. Um, and then I went to law school, and I was like, I think this is what I'm going to do, and then I ended up booking Bioshock, and was debating, like, well, should I do this Bioshock thing? Like, what is this? And before I even knew how, I guess, big people would think Bioshock was, or is, I, um, I got really excited about, about what it was. So I, I didn't realize how big the franchise was, but I just realized that I really loved the creative process, and the things that I didn't like about film and television, which kind of repelled me a little bit from that industry, was it gone with working with Ken and, and working on this project. So I just decided to 
try and do both. So I am here on my first weekend after beginning law school and doing this, which is totally different. So, uh, yeah, if I don't get in Bioshock 4, I'll sue everybody. <laughs> Troy, uh, you're more of a self-professed nerd. Yes. Were you aware of Bioshock when uh, when this opportunity came past? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's interesting. Uh, Courtney's playing Elizabeth. You know, a character that you see now. Obviously, you're really voicing a character that is also what who the player is going to be. I mean, is, does that put you in a funny position in terms of how you're going to be articulating it? Funny is a weird word, but uh, yeah, and Ken and I have had several conversations about this. You know, when you take an FPS, it's also an RPG, and then, which the whole point is to be this immersive experience. But then when you give that first player, or first person character a voice, you can be, sometimes you can, and I've seen it happen before, to where you actually pull the player out of that experience. Because oh, I wouldn't say something like that, I wouldn't do that. So here you have a narrative and, and a huge story that you're trying to convey, and you also have a character that is incredibly stoic. He's the strong, silent type, and never says anything without thinking about it first. How do you convey that kind of emotion and intention without seeing the face? You know, and a lot of actors give you the eyes, you know? And you can't do that in this case. You've got two hands. And what was really cool was, you know, I told Ken, I was like, this is really ambitious. Are we gonna be able to pull this off? And uh, it was really cool because he's embraced this phrase and drilled it in my head of draining the swamp, of just pulling any of the ideas that you think you need to compensate and just really trusting it. Because the, the benefit and the asset that we have in this is we have Elizabeth there to really sell the fact that Booker's taking a second on this decision. He doesn't know what to do. He's scared. He's awed by what she just did. So it's, it's, it's not a... Um, it's a challenge, but like Ken says, it's more of an opportunity. No one's ever done anything like this before. And the, the time and the attention that's, that's going into it, it can't fail. The story's too good, you know, so, but at the same time, it is on us to make sure that we don't suck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we, we do have some very interesting video clips. I want, I want to show one. It's, it's uh, the first sequence that we saw in the trailer of like, kind of what the voiceover process is like. So let's go ahead. Elizabeth. Promise me. I will stop him. No. That is an oath you cannot keep. But promise me that if it comes to it, you will not let him take me back. It won't come to that. Alright? I'm first Courtney. What's that awesome hat? <laughs> First of all, I would, this is my disclaimers. I did not know that. I knew they were filming for purposes of animation. I didn't know they were filming for purposes of 600 of you seeing <laughs> But uh, yeah, that hat is my nemesis in this process. I hate it. Prada is actually uh, coming out with it next Yeah. Is, is, is there a, it's a very high tech piece of gear. We take a baseball cap and we cut everything but the cut middle the bill, and we put yeah. the microphone on it. Yes. Um, I thought it was just video board. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that, we're talking about doing, we're going to do some revamp that hat. Merchandising. Come on, guys. <laughs> um, so, in, in, in doing that, Courtney, did, did you have an idea of what the game was going to look like, how the character would be animated? I mean, where, where, where was your head when, when, when that was going on? 
I mean, a lot of these, and I think you'll see in another clip, is that this doesn't just take place over one recording. A lot of, a lot of these different pieces are covered over multiple recordings. So at various points, sometimes the animation's not even done. Sometimes Ken just has an idea. And, on, and all these things are constantly being reworked. So at, at every different level in the process, I have a, we all have a different idea of, of exactly what it's going to look like. What, what I can say is that when I saw this demo at E3, I was blown away. Like I could not believe how incredible. And and I, I have done stuff and you know, you never know what what, what it's what your work is gonna look like at the end. And I've never been as blown away as I was watching this demo. I, I would have to concur. She discovered what a squee was. <laughs> <laughs> and then shortly a glop. Ken, so what what did you have in mind before you saw the voice work? And then after Courtney did the voice work, did the scene change? I mean, like, what's, what's, what's kind of the ebb and flow of that? So the way we work this is, you know, usually when I did System Shock, um, System Shock and did um, Bioshock, I never met any of the actors on Bioshock. I met them over the phone, and we would just do, basically, I'd be sitting there in a conference room on a speakerphone, and um, we would have the actor in New York or in LA, and I'd be directing them over the phone, and they had the script, and I would do some rewriting on the fly. I, I had a fair amount of rewriting on the fly. But it was, by nature, there wasn't, it wasn't a very intimate process. And with Booker and Elizabeth, we decided very early on that we would need to get to know each other. Um, so we actually flew Courtney and, and Troy out, um, and they actually flew next, they sat next to each other on the plane and really got to know each other. So by the time they came in, they already had understanding of each other, they knew each other, which you don't get a, a lot of opportunity to do. And I was trying to be very honest with them. I said, look, I don't really know exactly how we're gonna do this stuff, um, because what's, hard to understand is that, you know, these aren't cutscenes. These are these are bits that are gonna happen in the game. The whole sequence of Elizabeth in the store, you know, with the Lincoln mask and, and that her grouping around, we don't know if the player's gonna look in this direction or that direction, or the player's gonna run out or start shooting, or we don't know what's gonna happen. So we have this whole incredible system where um, that Chris Klein, our, our technical director, is driving, wherein Elizabeth and other AIs are constantly watching the player to see what the player is doing and trying to become the player's improvisational partner and try to like see cool moments that can happen. And if they're the right moment, play those, play that piece of content. And if they're the wrong moment, maybe wait and play it later or do something later. But not having done this before and not even having the technology really in place when we did these recording sessions, I had to do a lot of guesswork. And then it's like, yeah, that's a whole technological question, but then you have getting the characters right. And, you know, I, didn't, I hadn't met these, I hadn't been in the room with these guys before, so I tried to write, getting a sense of them, but once we got in the room together, and I started hearing them talk, it was more important to me to write something that would feel comfortable for them and natural for them, rather than a preconception I had. And I think that's always much stronger if you have an actor who's committed that they're gonna find they're going to find the truth of the character, and the more you could write with that, the, the better. Um, I, I, I think this brings up uh, another thing. Some people have wondered when they see that demo, how scripted is it? You know, how much does the game? You know, obviously, um, I've seen over the years that you know, when you show a demo, you want to show the game being played very effectively to be able to get a, a sense of it. If, if you wouldn't mind sort of clarifying that for the audience. Well, we had a lot of that after E3. People were like, "Oh, the skyline sequence must be scripted," or you know, the part in the store with Elizabeth must be scripted. 
And there are moments that are scripted, like for instance, you know, in that scene in the doorway, that's a nice, you know, for us, that's a really nice um, gating moment. We know there's a quest item in that store the player's going to have to get. We know the player's going to go in the store, we know they're going to leave the store because they need a quest object. So that we take out, whenever we have an opportunity to like put a specific moment in, we will, but most, 99% of the game, like inside the store, who knows what the player's going to do? Who knows what Booker's going to do? Who knows if he's going to spend any time in there at all besides doing what he needs to do? So we have a whole system that basically monitors what the player is doing and watches it and tries to introduce content like that seems very um, natural and organic, but it's basically watching the player all the time and saying, can I do something now? Can I, and Elizabeth as an AI, not as a character, is constantly saying, can I do something now? Can I do something cool now? Can I, can I pick up the Lincoln mask and put it on my head now? And um, if she can't do it in the store, well, maybe she should do it in another part of the level. Um, the AIs, there's a whole bunch of AIs who are like fighting each other and beating each other up. We have a whole system where basically the AIs are sort of saying to each other, you know, in uh, Soto Woche, going, hey, I'm gonna come over there and beat the shit out of you. And everyone's like, cool. And, um, and, and they negotiate, and they, they have to negotiate under, under, under the table because we have to make sure, we don't know what the player is gonna be doing at any, at any point. So we have to make sure that it's the right time. So it's an extreme, it's probably the, and Elizabeth is a bit the biggest problem for this and the biggest opportunity because she's always right there. Just getting her in a place where you don't have an actress with an actor's an actor's instinct to like know where to go and to know to engage. You we have to get her there. We have to get her to the right place where she's looking at Booker but not standing right in front of him in his way. What you really want is an FPS is somebody constantly standing in front of you. you have to <laughs> so she has to be there, but not too there. She has to be pointing things out, but she doesn't want to be driving the process. As an FPS, the player wants to be driving the process. So it's a very challenging thing, but it's also really exciting. And what I love about these two is I basically were able to bring them in, and I think a lot of times, you know, a director, wa a director wants to say, like, I totally know what I'm doing here. Don't worry about it. You're in good hands. I basically said to them, like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing here. <laughs> and I need you to work with me and collaborate with me and try to figure this out. And that's what did and they were very open to that and they didn't freak out and we just um we just started figuring it out Troy, would you like to just confirm that you didn't I, freak I freaked out, out. <laughs> no, not at all and it's it really is i mean and again we're still so early on in this process and, and you guys have seen just i mean very barely scratching the surface but it really has been a lot of directors a lot of actors say it was a very collaborative process but it really is i mean there were this this one scene of three lines that we sat and camped on for a solid hour and like just got out of the room we're like okay what are we trying to do what are we trying to do with this and Ken is incredibly open to suggestions and rewrites there's no ego involved it really is just trying to simply make the best the best game possible and specifically the best scenario possible for the player and that's not I would say that I mean I obviously haven't done that much video game work but that is that kind of humble nature is not typical Ooh. of people in this industry. <laughs> there are a lot of people, a lot of directors that are just, I mean, <laughs> they're, they're more narcissistic old. than uh, actors, if that's possible. Um, but, uh, yeah, some of, the, some of them are just really don't want you improvising, they don't want you changing anything, they have a very clear idea, and they put you in, and as an actor, in that box, and a lot of times it's like you're fighting to try and, and be creative still, and Ken is not like that at all, it's it's Really, it's, it's an assessment to him. I think it's important that, you know, I think Amy Henning and the guys that are at Naughty Dog have really done a good job of showing the industry and inspired me to, but the actors are a real asset for you if you let them be, rather than something you have to dictate to. Um, you know, obviously it's legendary how, how effective they're, you know, 
how I did with Nolan North and those guys have been on that project. And watching those videos, I said, you know, I started really seeing the opportunities and also just not knowing exactly how we're going to accomplish this task, I needed to collaborate with these guys. Hey, let's, let's look at one more clip of some of the VO work of, uh, I would say, one of the more emotional scenes that we saw in the demo. which I think if any of you have seen the demo is one of the most shocking moments in it. So let's go ahead and take a look at it. Super, super challenging for us. I'm going to show in a second how it happened and the actors, how the actors really made it happen. Because in a movie, to get the amount of a the problem we have as a, as a game developer is it's not a cutscene. What if the player runs off? You know, what if the player is wants to run ahead to the next thing? We have very, very, very limited time. All we can basically do is make the park a certain size so they can't get out of that scene, um, you know, qu quickly enough to get to the next bit and ruin this emotional moment. So as a writer, I have to write really, really, really fast. Like that scene, if I was writing as a movie, I'd probably want to take a minute and a half to get Courtney to, you know, to legitimately build to the emotion. So the problem I have as a, as a writer is she had to get to this really strong emotional place where saying you were right, you were right, but she didn't have as an actor any time to get there in the scene, in the actual scene. So we were really struggling with it all day. And then we had the idea that, I think you had the idea that you, Troy should berate me. Berate, by the way, if anyone couldn't pick up what that word was. So you had this idea that Troy would be a douchebag to her, and, 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 and which was a real stretch. <laughs> and, and 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 not Booker, but but Troy is an actor. Basically, we asked Troy to help with just get her to the state, never intend to use any of his lines, but get her to the state where she could um, reach his point emotionally. And uh, we'll show it, and, and it's kind of interesting, 
it was me fascinating for me as a non-actor to watch these two actors working because, well, why don't we show it? Yeah, yeah, let's go ahead and see it. It's, it's quite something. Whenever you're ready. Season, do you need something to build to it? Yeah, I just, I, it's like, it's hard to just jump in because I'm like really emotionally exhausted. So it helps, like, all the stuff helps, but. So what we do without telling your voice is that you're in there. Um, I'm thinking, I'm not just thinking. Help us build if he berated you a bit. And what? If he berated you a bit? Berated you? Mm. Yeah, sure. What are you doing? What are you thinking? Absolutely. Yeah, you're a moron. You're gonna get fucking killed. I like that. Okay. I'm playing into my fear of life. Like, I'm never, like, you're never gonna be free from it. Like, just to help me get into it, Troy. Okay. What were you thinking? You're a stupid fucking yeah. risk. You're, you're an idiot. You're just a child. Yeah. You know, you're, you're, you're never, it's never gonna happen. So just give it a shot. <laughs> <laughs> Pull it the fuck together. Look at me. What were you thinking just now? You think you can just run off and do this? Look at me! Ken, by the way. <laughs> Pull it the fuck together. You've either got this or you don't. The fuck were you thinking? I've seen lately, I wouldn't put a nickel on what's possible. Now, come on. I think it's time we found Comstock, okay? Can we do it once more? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> scream at me a little more. <laughs> <laughs> two actors in the same room. It's just yeah, kind no, of done in isolation. And I rarely do you get the opportunity to do something like that. And so then you take, again... Without being arrested. <laughs> <laughs> always that. But you, you know, we have this scene, and the, it wasn't just a challenge for Elizabeth, but it was also a challenge for me, because you know, you don't want Booker to all of a sudden go, I'm so sorry, and all of a sudden show that, you know, turn up and show his belly to her. It still has to be this, I just saw something that completely freaked me out. And I just realized that I really hurt you. So, you know, come, come on, just throw some dirt on it. You'll be all right. <laughs> and it, it was. It, I mean, you also have to, I'm going to say this. And that, we were in a space of. Oh, my God, that room was so small. Four feet by five feet, maybe? Six feet by five feet? We were close. <laughs> we were real close. And so when she's looking up at me, I am literally, I mean. Right in front of my right, face. Right in her face. 
And it, it got, I mean, we're, we're able to look at that now and laugh, but it was awkward. <laughs> and this was, I mean, really this, awkward. Was, this was the, the, my callback. Yeah, so this was oh. the first time I'd ever... And we'd, we'd like float over there together and go, That's <laughs> <laughs> like, like the worst day of my life. Um, no, it, it was interesting too. I mean, watching that, like, I'm sniffling because it, it like makes me feel... It, it's weird because when I first saw this clip, when they were at, you know, saying, hey, this is what we're going to show... I felt so uncomfortable watching it. But in a room of 600 people, it's, it's funny. funny. Yeah. You should do it again. What's wrong with you? It's really bizarre. But, I mean, if you guys were to see this, I mean, I feel like it's so different if you were to see it individually to how awkward you feel just watching someone do this. But as an, And there's a part where I'm like, you know, it's weird because I'm watching saying, like, crying and crying, and then, like, keep going, you know? It's just, like, well, all, it's of, all of the production crew was outside going, <laughs> <laughs> they were freaked out. Is he going to hit her? <laughs> 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 and, that's, into and that's a typical thing. I mean, when you, like Ken, Ken was saying, when you have these, such a limited time, I, I this was the end of the recording session, my voice was, like, I was sick, I was exhausted. Like, I did not think that Ken was like, we need to keep keep getting to this emotional level. I, I really did not think I had it in me. Um, and, and that's where it's kind of a testament to this this collaborative idea that we're, we're telling you guys. I mean, this project genuinely has that. And we all were helping each other in the creative process. And that's, I mean, to have team, like a team dynamic like that is, um, I mean, it's, I'm really grateful to have to we have all that. We all hugged it out after that, too, so don't <laughs> <laughs> And there was a line where I think we were laughing over it where I'm like you fucking psychopath like you know it's, it's, it's a good fun um Ken I, uh, obviously we, we've seen how like intense that, that scene can be but we haven't addressed the other thing it's kind of weird like the way it's like the street and says Revenge of the Jedi uh, do you have any insight as to you know sort of how that came about that you decided to have this shocking shocking moment towards the demo yeah. so that scene actually we originally started the, the demo what all Elizabeth was doing was healing a dog, a small dog, and the problem was is, A, it didn't read this tiny little dog, and um, we had a horse from the previous demo, because the guy threw a horse at you, and Sean was, my, my, lead, my lead artist like, another fucking horse, dude. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, yeah. Um, and, um, but originally the scene was quite different. It was, you, it, the, the environment was transformed into a, um, like a primeval forest. You really want to show Elizabeth losing control of her power, but the problem was the primeval forest didn't look that different from the forest that they, it was a little park that they were in. And we had worked, Irrational had worked on the game for about six months after Bioshock, which we never announced, never talked about, but we had a whole bunch of assets from it. And we were like, well, what if we were to do like a, if instead of a forest, we need something totally night and day. So it has to freak out Booker, completely freak out Booker, completely freak out Elizabeth. Well, something that they would be, because these two, these are two characters born in the 19th century, remember? Something that the audience would be quite familiar with, but they would be quite unfamiliar with, and would totally freak them out and be a fun surprise and shock for the audience. And we just happened to have all these assets sitting around, unused. And um, so we went, in a day, our effects artist, Stephen Alexander, basically put together that entire street scene, um, and then we sort of knew that final... A final little touch to say what was going on here, and that's where the um, you know, the, the movie marquee came. Yeah, yeah. 
Revenge of the Jedi, not Return of the Jedi. The, the original title. movie. <laughs> it, it was interesting to see half of a rational do that reference and half didn't. I, I, oh. I was very ashamed of the guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh. What was the song we ended up going with? That, that's that's playing. Oh, the Here's Your Fears song. It is Here's Your Fears. Yeah, yeah. Okay, because I thought it went back and forth. Because yeah. we're recording on. Like, I'll shut up. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, did, did, did you guys have a sense when you're doing the EVO for that, just how dramatic that scene was going to be? Just no. to go and hold on, like, like, like the entire reality of the game just kind of drops out. No, and what's what's funny is that was actually a, a, an earlier version of that scene was part of the audition process. And so, you know, you're, you're arrogant. I'm arrogant. You're not arrogant. You're okay. Um, <laughs> but you, you, you think that, wow, what I just did was awesome, and then you put it in Ken's perspective going... It's so far off the mark. I, I like where your head's at, but you know to see to see that that specific scene develop because we do have a lot emotionally tied to it because we have all the experience. It's probably for me. I'll just take it. It's my mom. Um, to 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 go from the point where it is you know from the primeval forest now to you know the street in the middle of the eighties. Um, we had no idea, and it was even not fully finished when we finished recording it. So the first time that we truly saw everything was at E3. So we sat down in that theater and we're just like you guys, just like. Uh. <laughs> so, I it, it took me about a good five to ten seconds to realize just what had happened. Yeah, and it just kind of just moves in. I'm like, hold on, hold on, this this isn't right. <laughs> So, Ken, when we have the VO, I mean, what's, what's in that process of, of hearing that and then forming the character? Because, like, as, as opposed to Uncharted, which is mocap, you know, you guys aren't in the silly suit enough to make it look like sad silly hats. Um, you're actually animating the characters and animating the scenes. What's, what's that process, and how much does the VO kind of guide you through that? Well, you know, what we do is we know, we, I write the scene as I originally intended, and then we go into the studio and we change it and we work on it. And then sometimes we find out that we need something um, different. Like you saw some of those bits there where Courtney was like wearing different outfits. That's because those, those sessions were two or three months apart from each other. And we would actually find little bits of each performance that as we figured out exactly what the scene wanted to be, sometimes we'd have a performance that was great, but there was one moment that didn't feel as right, but maybe there's another moment from two months earlier that was better. So I work with... Um, Justin and Christina in my office, who basically are great for it. They, they know every single take, and they are basically put candidates in front of me and say, well, what do we have a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and sometimes we construct um, performances out of a bunch of different things, and quite often that's not because of the problem with the performance, it's because what we actually decide we need to do in the, in the game changes slightly. And sometimes scenes, like the opening part of the demo, the very opening part where you, they're outside the store talking, I didn't, we didn't originally intend to even have that scene. We had no scene. And that was just a bunch of sort of ad-libs that we put together and, and made a scene out of, and probably out of two different sessions and 15 different takes. Um, but that's the advantage of not doing the, 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 um, the motion capture is because you have a lot of freedom then to, to, to mix and match that stuff, as long as the sound quality is in the same ballpark, which it usually is. No, I, I, I believe we have some demo of sort of the, the, the various stages you've gone through in creating a, a, a scene that we saw in the demo. I believe it's when the songbird is kind of tearing off the roof. Yeah, you know, this is, I think it's kind of hard to understand when you see really polished stuff. You know, there's a process there. And we have, you know, like uh, George, our, our concept artist, you know, we work, I write the scene, and then we sort of work with the concept artist to sort of like try to get a, an, you know, to envision what it's going to play out like. And, and then you sort of go from, you know, the very the pencil storyboards to 
early animations, and, and this, I wish we had actually an even earlier version of this, because this is just like a, you know, a, a gray box version of the part where Elizabeth comes in and stops the songbird. What's really interesting about the first version of this is the songbird was much more aggressive originally, yeah. the first animation that um, John Mankiel did. And he was driving the situation, and he was basically saying, all right, Elizabeth, come with me. And we decided, and this is after the recording session, it would be a lot more interesting if the songbird was the angry girlfriend, essentially, or you know, the, the, the jilted lover in a lot of ways. And Elizabeth became the active um, driver of the scene. I think that made him a more interesting character. It made her a stronger character because of the, the um, sacrifice was very much in, in her hand and, and of her doing. And then, you know, we have the final version with sound here um, that sort of shows all those elements coming together and making the final scene. You can see how... You know, how <laughs> Did, did, did Ken have to say, like, okay, now there's this really big mechanical birdie thing that's kind of like leaning in? If you're scared of it. Ooh. I mean, a lot of times in, in the audition process, too, like Trey already touched on, like, there were these, like, this scene and the, and, uh, the horse scene where there, we didn't know what we were working with, and Ken was trying to describe kind of the, the indescribable, and, and so that we would know, kind of have this idea of what was going on. Um, so I, I really didn't know. That's why I think I was so blown away by seeing the demo. Because that was when even even my best imagination didn't even come close to touching what, what Ken and, and the rest of the the, um, the people on this project actually brought to fruition. And one of the things that I really love about that, that again, you get to see the uh, the actualization of, of Ken, your intention, was that the song, songbird is not looking at her. He's looking away from her mm-hmm. until she says take me home. And then he looks at her, and then his eyes change. And we shortened that scene because originally it was a lot longer. Songbird was torturing Booker. And because I had like fallen through this glass and I had glass all through my skin and he was just like digging in. And I loved it because it was like really visceral and I, I'm, I'm a glut for punishment. I love to go, ah, you know. Um, like I haven't done that before. <laughs> but uh, it was really cool to see that, that scene really get tightened up and truncated because, and we talked about this, and, and you said it was like there was no purpose for it. it, it we, we also ran out of time. Like, yeah. that's, like, we, like John Diamandigo was working his ass off and we just ran out of time to do all those bits. So that happens a lot of times. You run out of time, like, okay, what is the heart of this thing? Right. And, and it was really about, it wasn't about Booker and the songbird, it was really about Elizabeth right. and the songbird. So we just sort of truncated that part and I think it made it stronger. Um, Ken, the, I, I, I wouldn't say that any game you've ever worked on would be realistic in terms of the way that it, it presents human beings. This, I would say, is, is one of the more stylized I've seen. D- d- does that give you certain benefits in terms of getting that emotional read out of the animations? Because I, I don't think I could see that scene play out with something that looks, say, more like Call of Duty. 
I, well, obviously the RPGs need to be done. <laughs> you know, the Songbird obviously is yeah. exaggerated and ridiculous, but and, but you know it's a tribute to our animators and they can get that emotion and that very familiar like I'm not going to talk to you, turning your head away thing that we've all we've all been in fights, you know, with our boyfriends or girlfriends, and we've all had that moment. And for them to do that with a, a thirty foot tall bird guy, you know, I thought was real impressive. <laughs> it really is. And I, look, I just describe it. I'm like, no, John, it's like you're out of a fight with your girlfriend, and he's like, yeah, it's not my fucking girlfriend. That's a giant thirty foot tall bird. Guy. <laughs> <laughs> and, but no, but an animator, a good animator, will be able to take those beats and then translate that into, you know, we also talked about how birds turn their head. You know, they sort of their head sort of tell, you know, can turn really quickly. Also, he doesn't have eyes. On, he doesn't look. He doesn't look at you. He looks from the side at you because the, the eyes are on the side of his head. So it takes a really talented animator to bring all those elements together, but also make them. Everybody who sees that knows what we're talking about. We're talking about a relationship, a damage and damaging relationship. But you know, it's such a strange um, couple. I think that um, you know. Sorry, what was the question now? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I see, also when, say in the animation of Elizabeth. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. The, the also with her eyes, her, her dewy yeah. eyes. I mean, here's a character that you've got to develop a relationship with. And I have to say, those types of emotions that we're already seeing just in this little snippet from the game are not ones that you see very frequently in games. And when you do, they don't tend to work. But I mean, I'm wondering how, like, I mean, you're clearly working with the animations and the stylization of the art direction to try to convey that. You know, one of the reasons we decided to make Elizabeth a little exaggerated is because... Her emotions, the emotions had to read at a distance. And because she's often, we don't control where Booker is. She's not always in cutscenes. She's on the other side of the room and had to get, convey something very important. So by exaggerating her features a little bit, she's able to project her emotions, um, you know, I, I think a lot more easily than the player. Um, I have to apologize. Uh, we have had such a fascinating discussion up here that we've run out of time in this room. <laughs> and it's all your fault, Dad. Yes. <laughs> you control time. I do. I, it's, it's an amazing power I have. But, um, guys, thank you very much. I'd like to have a round of applause. For Thank you all very much. Cheers. Thank you, guys. Versus the World Productions. Scaring normal people on the Internet since 2010. www.vtwproductions.com.